Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello. Welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Travis Fisher. We are back, Travis. We're back. Man, how does it feel to be back in this here studio? Uh, you could say I'm energized. <laughs> how, do you, how do you feel being back? You, you had a good, like, a month off. How, how did that I, okay, feel? To be clear, I did not have a month off. Four weeks? No, I had three weeks. I came back sorry. a week early. Oh, my God. I'm so See, sorry. See, we have so much to catch up on. Before we get into that, though, I don't want to get too far off track. So could you tell people how to contact us? Send an email to thepowerhouratheritage.org. Thepowerhouratheritage.org. Send us an email. Tell us what you want to hear. Tell us what you think. We'll respond. Jack's going to respond personally. I will respond personally. I guarantee you that I will respond personally. And we will also consider what you have to say for our future podcast. We love your ideas. We love your suggestions. If you tell us don't do this subject anymore, unless it's nuclear, we might not do that subject anymore. Um, but anyway, it's important for us to hear what you have to say. So, Travis, what did I miss the past few weeks? Oh, boy. We got a lot of stuff going on. Uh, I personally, so when, when we were working on the comments to EPA— Jack was nowhere to be found. We we did all right on the comments. Encourage folks to read them. They're pretty good. EPA's power plant rule has pretty much been on my mind the past three weeks. That just tells you where I am. To be clear, uh, you're, there you're, were two there were two rules. Right. Power plant tailpipe. Yep. I submitted a comment on the tailpipe. Yeah, rule. and then you went gallivanting around the country. You got in an RV and drove to Colorado or wherever for three weeks, not four. To be clear. <laughs> Um, so Com it, completely normal vacation for most of the world, but this is America, Jack. Why don't you we ask take me? Vacations. Why don't you ask me how my vacation went? How was it, Jack? It was so good. I love America. Anyone who doesn't know me, you know, people who they must know I love America. I love all she stands for, and I've driven across. I've I've had the luxury, the um, yeah, the luxury, the benefit, whatever of of seeing much of this country. And um, when I was much younger, my wife and I drove across the country. And that was, God, like 26 years ago, like a long time ago. So it's been a while. Um, but my daughter's 14, and my wife and I wanted to do that with her. And there's nothing that renews one's love for one's country, at least my love for this country, like driving across it. We saw... Everything that makes America great. You went to some national parks. We went to, you know, here's, uh, I've had I've had a bit of a, an identity crisis, in fact, as a result of this trip, because my disposition is kind of privatized everything. And while I spend a lot of time criticizing this federal government and how it does its job, it's doing a pretty good job of maintaining, at least from what one sees driving through and, part and partaking, 
maintaining those national parks. They are absolutely gorgeous. The facilities are reasonable. Prices are affordable. I heard these these stories of how crowded it was. It wasn't. And the Grand Canyon is grand. And the great sand dunes are great. And Zion Cavern is Ziony. <laughs> it's just awesome. Driving through Texas makes you feel like a freedom-loving, red-blooded American. Amen. It was just great. And um, here's a tidbit for anyone who has thought about maybe driving across the country in an RV. This was a 32-foot RV. I had never driven one before other than um, this particular one, which I bought used, to the RV fix-it shop over the last couple of years to try to... Can you do that with the normal driver's license, or do you have to get a special one? I can do whatever I want because I'm a freedom-loving American. All right? So let's get that straight right now. You get the piece (laughs) of paper that Ron Swanson uses. I can do what I want. There's my permit. But but technically, I'm legal. But I just want to be clear. Even if I needed a special license, I was going to drive it. Because of my Americanness, right? But you're saying you don't need a special license. You don't okay. need a special okay. license. That's that's the answer. <laughs> so difficult, just getting basic answers out of this guy. But here's the point. The point is this: I was afraid, and I'm going to open myself up right now. I was afraid to drive it for a couple of years. We made up excuses not to go, like COVID, like moving. Um, but this year, I ran out of excuses, and I had to man up for my family, get behind the wheel of this thing, and take off. And I. Swear to all that's good and holy. This 32-foot Class A recreational vehicle, this gargantuan boat of a thing, after a few hundred miles felt like my 2011 Hyundai Elantra. It was amazing how it shrunk. You just drive it like anything else. Hmm. Anyone who has any fear of doing that, don't. Just get behind it and drive. Just do it as the kids say. So anyway... There you go. It was a great success. The family loved it. We um, we took a left turn out west. We were going to go right and start heading north. And we ended up in Vegas for two days. So that was awesome. <laughs> with my daughter and wife. You Good, know, wholesome he, fun with the family in Vegas. We went to see David Copperfield, so it was wholesome and fun. Okay. It was good. So anyway, that's that. Not to bore everyone else with with that, but I thought we made a big deal about it before I left. And I can't help. I like chatting about things like this. And it's relevant because. Well, I was I was picking up on a couple of themes that we could maybe get into with our guest today. OK. I like this idea that we're taking something that's good in concept, like the National Parks idea. I don't think anybody's like, well, we shouldn't do that at all. Like there are some things that we should absolutely preserve. And it's the same thing with like energy efficiency or clean air or all of the things that people are saying, well, we should do something. Yeah, so we've done most of the good stuff. And I think where we're at now is we've got these tools that I would say folks are abusing. I agree with that. So why don't we get to introducing this person? Let's do it. Um, Now, there is one other thing. There's one other thing. Do you have anything else going on? Like anything else? Um, Let me see. Is this where we break my news? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Or break your knees. We I can ha- do either. I haven't even told the producer yet. He's going to be very upset with me. Well, everyone, get ready. So I am leaving the Heritage Foundation. Another one bites the dust. I have a great reason. What is it? 
going to be the director of energy and environmental policy at the Cato Institute. No, no. Uh, you said you had a great reason? Yeah, that's the best reason. That's the best reason. Absolutely. <laughs> I guess it's a pretty good reason. I guess it's a pretty good reason. I hate to see you go. Um, folks who don't know this, I, I've known Travis for a long time, and I've wanted to work with him for a long time, and I was extremely happy when we were finally able to make that happen um, here at Heritage, and then that turned into this podcast. And so I was saddened um, for myself and for the organization that he's leaving, but I... I, I thought it. you're. I thought you were going to say you were disappointed as soon as we finally got to work together. You were like, "Oh, Travis, I'm not, not, as, I'm not, not as good as they thought." I'm not as. Ma I'm not mad at you, Travis. I'm just disappointed. Just disappointed. It stings worse when you say it that way. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, even though we only got to work together for a short period of time, it was great. I loved working with you. You're Same. an awesome dude. Um, smart like the Dickens, and we did this podcast together. We started it, and I think it's pretty good. I think you are doing a great job. Um, you whether, absolutely need to keep doing this. Whether I am or not, no, no, whether I am or not doing a great job is, uh, I don't know if that's true or not true, but I know that you did a great job and you're a great person to to start this with and um, and to whatever, how, whatever extent I am good at it moving forward, I have you to thank for helping me be that. So thank you for this podcast for coming to heritage at least for a little bit just for being a friend which we will continue to be hopefully thanks jack yeah i mean invite me back i'll say yes every time i don't know about that but anyway <laughs> enough about that <laughs> now we have one more podcast together so let's fire this baby up now for our last podcast i wanted a special kind of guest as you know I only like to bring our audience the absolute best people out there. But I also wanted someone that we both know well so we can have a really fun conversation. And when I think about this universe of people, there's one person, one person that rises above the rest. This dude that we've both known for a long time. He's not afraid to laugh a little bit, maybe throw a couple of jabs. He's principled, which is important. And while being an all-around good guy is enough as far as I'm concerned, our guest today is also a nationally recognized expert in energy and environment. He has a long career being a thought leader in the policy space, working for great organizations like the Institute for Energy Research. And that's not all, Travis. As you know, but maybe our audience doesn't because they don't even know who he is yet. Well, he was my boss at the Institute for Energy Research. I, I, I can I can vouch for his effectiveness, and good lord, he's a, he's good in the trenches. He uh, when he when he joined the 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 DOE with us, man, that that transition team was was top notch. We should talk about that. Let's a let's bit. get into that at some point. All right, um, out of that, he held one of the most important positions at the Department of Energy as the Assistant Secretary for not not the Assistant to the Secretary, to be clear the actual assistant secretary, which is a high-level position, for the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy. And by most important, I would argue most hated, at least I hate that office. Well, but we can talk about the budget for that office. It's ridiculous in the billions. We, we will talk about that maybe if, if we want. You know, this we'll man see. was once in charge of like $3 billion a year. To cut to the chase, today we have my good friend and yours, and he is a good friend to everyone who listens to this thing, 
He's a great friend of humanity. Daniel Simmons. Dan, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, guys, for that uh, for that <laughs> intro. Did you like that? That was for you, man. That 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 was uh, that that was very uh, laudatory. I don't know if I can quite live up to it. You but, absolutely uh, can. Okay. We we have the power of editing. We can make it. You know, we'll make you awesome. Don't worry about it. Okay. Excellent. So let's start by talking, if you don't mind. Well, yeah. Let's start by talking about your time at DOE. Just how was it there? You know, a lot of us in in the conservative think tank world spend a lot of our time just hating on those guys. <laughs> And um, and you were one of them. And, and so what was it like, like moving from a moving from sort of people who are massively skeptical of the Washington bureaucracy, especially as it pertains to to energy? And yet you held the position that a lot of us save our greatest um, disdain for. But we love we still that to be clear, we didn't disdain you or the position when you held it. So that's a it's a it's an interesting question I think because it is uh, it's it's one that I definitely uh, wrestled with about how do I how do I do this job as someone that is a you know a a serious free marketer personally and then I'm am in charge of this office that will might now spend three billion but when when I was there um, was only spending two billion a year. And and how do you reconcile Did you just those say two only things? Two billion a year? Only two billion. That's yeah. We are in the swamp, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> only two billion. But like, so much of that also comes down to like how, like what is the role? And this is a this is a pet peeve for me. Um, with with how many people do this? Like, what is the role of political appointees? What is the role of working for the government? Period. And, um, you know, my, my take is that my job as a, you know, I mean, I was, I was confirmed by the Senate to be the assistant secretary. My job is to execute the law. Now, it no, doesn't necessarily matter if I agree with the law or not, or if I think that, um, you know, if, if I think the office should have quite that much money, that's not really that's not for me to say that is for elected representatives. And then my job is to execute and try to do the best job, um, you know, spending $2 billion a year, $2 billion um, taxpayer dollars, $2 billion. Uh, well, and that's, and I, I, I think that that's a, that's a critical part of this is that this is $2 billion from people like, uh, well, I was going to say my grandparents, my grandparents are no longer with us. Um, you know, it is it is two billion dollars from hardworking people. That money needs to be spent well. Um, if Congress is going to do this, then we have uh, th then it's then it is important that we uh, that we spend the money well. So um, it was it was interesting that way. But overall, it was a great job, just to be honest, because um, you know the the Department of Energy is a really interesting. Um, is a is a really interesting animal. Uh, obviously, as 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 we all know, there 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 are two utterly indistinct parts to the Department of Energy. There is the nuclear weapons mission, and then there is like the that. Well, I get there's there's a maybe three. Then there is a science mission, and then there is a a energy mission. And unfortunately, it's just called the uh, uh, the Department of Energy. So. The science mission gets overlooked, even though the Department of Energy is the largest funder of the physical sciences in the federal government. It's not NSF or something. It's the Department of Energy. Um, and uh, and then there's the, the nuclear weapons, which, you know, I did absolutely nothing with nuclear weapons because I know nothing about them. But, you know, I've spent more than 20, 
five years in, in Washington, D.C., uh, working on energy, energy and environmental issues. So it was a it it, it actually was a, a really cool job. Dan, going in, um, like I, I totally get what you're saying. Um, you know, we all deal with that. You know, I don't work at the Jack Spencer Foundation. I work at the Heritage Foundation. I'm bound by the the goals and objectives of the organization. And it's the same going into government. You're bound by the the law that Congress passes and, and the president um, sign, you know, signs into law. So how do you, from a position like that, how much, how much um, room do you have to exercise sort of your own perspective? Um, or even if the president, you know, the, the secretary and the president have a perspective that maybe lie outside of what the law, not maybe not the law, but I don't know, how, how much discretion do you have and do you have to, to, to carry out what you think is the best way to do the business of, of the office that you were the director of? Well, it's, uh, I mean, th there's always some discretion. Um, there is not necessarily, but there's not necessarily a ton of discretion. So for, you know, for example, um, well, while I was at the Department of Energy, President Trump started talking about, you know, shower heads, and he started talking about low flow toilets, and um, as as well as as well as light bulbs, and you know yeah, that came to a crashing halt yesterday. I think. <laughs> but the and so like the, the the question that I went to the general counsel with, which was like, you know, what leeway do we have on any of these issues? You know what what can you know what can we do? What can we not do? It turns out like on 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 so the Department of Energy does do some regulation of of water. Um, it's more EPA. Um, the answer was uh, we can't really do anything on toilets. There's nothing that is there's nothing that is legal um, to do there on the issue of like incandescent light bulbs. There was some leeway when it when it deals with um, exotic types of uh, or you know non-typical types of light bulbs. Um, not your regular light bulb that's a you know has an A19 the the, the prototypical light bulb mm -hmm. um, we couldn't do anything about that because that's in statute uh, but there's other things that we can do um, to to make sure that incandescent light bulbs can stay on the market because they are uh, you know for for a lot of these niche applications that they are um, you know still cost effective versus LEDs because LEDs um, for niche applications are kind of expensive. Um, and then the same thing with with shower heads, as in like, there was some there there was some legal room for us to 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 um, you know to make a determination. the The point being that there is some there is some wiggle room within the law, and uh, but you know the the way that that I dealt with that is by talking with the. the uh, asking the general counsel's office, okay, what can we do here? And the general's counsel's office was, uh, the people that I worked with are all careers. Um, you know, w what is possible and what is just illegal because, you know, while like my, the, my job at doing this, you know, my job is to execute the law. It is not to execute the, the wishes of Daniel Simmons. So, you know, figuring out where there is um, some some gray space. Did you ever ask, or what, what would happen if you, like, if you didn't do something or you slow walk something like at a, 
I guess you would just be sued. Someone would sue you, right? Yeah. And that, I mean, like on appliance standards, like the Department of Energy as a general rule is not a regulatory agency. Like they, they aren't. However, they also regulate everything in, 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 you know, wherever people are listening to this, if you are inside a building, there are things in that room that are regulated by the Department of Energy. Um, but it doesn't really think about itself as a, as an, as a, you know, a regulatory agency, even though um, all the efficiency standards come from the Department of Energy. Mm-hmm. And um, those efficiency standards have to be reviewed every six years. Like that is the law. Uh, the problem is, is that it takes like, it takes a while to, uh, you know, to, to do the necessary analyses. You know, believe it or not, we did not slow walk any of those analyses for the time that I was there. When the, when the career staff would bring them to me, we would act on them. Um, and, uh, I mean, it is certainly possible uh, for uh, me as a, you know, a, 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 a political appointee to have just, like, put that in my back pocket and not done anything with it for years. But again, like, that's not the way that I saw the job. Mm-hmm. Um, my job was to, you know, to, to, to execute the law. Plus, you know, when I made, I was, uh, thought that the decisions that we would make are more reasonable decisions than say what the next administration would make. And given that it's this administration, I think that most people would, would agree with me. So I was over in the much smaller office of electricity, same building, but again, we're talking about the forest all building. The DOE building is, uh, is kind of monstrous in a lot of ways, both size and just looks overall. It's one of those, uh, what, what, what do they call it? What's the, what's the name of the, the style? Brutalism. Brutalist. It's brutalist. It looks, I it's mean, I'm brutalist not... concrete and it looks a little, I got to say Soviet. Yes. There's something weird about it. It looks and feels communist. Not only yeah. because it is technical, not, I mean, literally. But I, I have but... a, I have a stupid question from the other side of the building since I, I did I never worked with Daniel in EERE. What if at the six-year mark, you just come up and say, yeah, we looked into it. Not a big deal. Things are pretty efficient already. Can we just not make any updates? Like, what, what, what's, what's the thing that compels you to tighten standards? Um, what, what would compel you to tighten standards is, you know, a, um, an economic analysis that where where it would really appear that the new standards would lead to, um, you know, positive, positive benefits. And, you know, one of the real challenges these days is, is all appliances, dishwashers, refrigerators, et cetera, have already, um, they've already been multiple rounds of, um, of appliance standards. So they are much more efficient than they have been in the past, but you also start to hit diminishing returns because there also hasn't been, um, just massive amounts of say, uh, you know, new technologies over the past 10 years, you might say over the past 40 years, there's some significant, um, progress. And that is certainly true, but you know, over the past 10 years that, uh, the, the progress hasn't been great because you do not need to, the law only requires to, to revise the standard, to, 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 uh, to tighten the standard. If there is a significant savings of energy, and uh, unfortunately, the law does not define what a significant savings of energy is. But that's so it is written in the law that you do not have to tighten if there's not a significant savings of energy. So if, you know, if there's a significant savings of energy, if it actually makes sense for consumers, um, 
to to have these more efficient standards, that's when you would that's when you would go forward. There's almost I, Dan. Literally, when I say this, I'm telling the truth. I don't know of any government person that I've ever known that that I personally like better than you, and that I respect more than you. But hearing you say those words makes my heart almost explode. I know that you're not that 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 those DOE bureaucrats think so highly of themselves and think so lowly of Americans that they think they're doing us a favor by deciding for me how to spend my money and if I think my dishwasher is efficient enough or not. Oh my God, I don't I don't know how you did it without your head exploding. Well, I I mean my, my 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 the opprobrium that I have here is not necessarily for the for DOE staff or it isn't for DOE staff, but it's for Congress. It's yeah. for Congress for doing this, for creating this law that works this way. And um, I mean, maybe it made sense in the 1970s, probably no, not. But, no, but it it does not necessarily make sense today because like this is the problem, and 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 it is amazing. So like you go to the you know, one piece, like a, a government program I don't necessarily have a problem with is like the energy energy guide, as in it will tell you, you know, these stickers are required by the FTC to be on, you know, to be on refrigerators and, and whatnot yeah. so that you can see like how much is this product, uh, you know, buying this water heater versus this other water heater so that you can compare like the upfront cost. And that is like, that is the role. That's what consumers should do is look at the upfront cost versus like the installation cost versus like the cost over time of operating this and figure out what works for themselves. Right. Unfortunately, you know, the, the law is, is, is putting, um, you know, federal officials in place to, to make some of those decisions for people. And I just, um, I mean, given the incredible amount of, of information that's out there today, um, you know, the, the, the law just doesn't make nearly uh, it. People should ha be able to make those decisions for themselves. Agreed. I, um, no one's listening to us. Tell, tell me how bad the DOE <laughs> bureaucrats are. They have to be horrible people, aren't they? All of them? Every single last one of them? No. I'm just that, kidding. That's the, you know, I mean, it is the, uh, I mean, I, I worked with great people at DOE, people that are very committed to advancing, uh, you know, to, to advancing energy. Um, uh, in, Not committed in, enough to get a job in the productive economy. Well, I mean, these are, <laughs> these are, these are some, uh, these are some pretty cool jobs though, being able to, uh, you know, to work at the Department of Energy, to visit yeah. the national labs, to, to, you know, be entrusted by the, uh, you know, by Congress with, you know, for each office, hundreds of millions of dollars to, to try to advance taxpayer dollars. Don't forget that tax, we don't they have. are taxpayer dollars. <laughs> um, so, you know, I mean, there is, uh, I'm just, I'm giving you a hard time. I mean, I'm, I'm serious in what I'm saying, but I'm giving you a hard time. I know you know that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> And I just want you to know, Jack, that, like this is the, uh, you know, my, my dad tells a story um, that I think is great. Uh, you know, our, my dad is with us in terms of, uh, you know, free markets and, and the federal government has too much money, et cetera, et cetera. And he, uh, in the 1980s, he worked at the Department of Interior in the, um, in the office of, uh, 
I can't, let's call it the Office of Analysis. I'm not sure the, the exact name. And their job was to, you know, to, to analyze how things are going at the Department of, of Interior and to make suggestions so that the, so that the, you know, all of Interior could be operating better. Um, he was a, a political science professor at the time um, and took a sabbatical for, for a couple of years to do that. And they did this analysis of the Department of Energy. And what they found in their analysis was that all parts of not Department of Energy, Department of Interior, all parts of the Department of Interior should have their budgets cut except for two parts. One was the Park Service because the uh, the, Depart the, the the Secretary of Interior at the time said they were not cutting that budget. And then the other office that they said they shouldn't cut the budget for was their own office. Um, which, I mean, it's just like, it, it's such human nature, such human nature that the things that you do are the things that really matter versus, you know, the things that, that other people, I mean, even if you would like to see lower budgets overall, the things that you're doing are, are, are the things that really matter. And that really, when it comes down to it, is the challenge of reducing yeah. the federal budget, because when it comes down to it, Congress is making those decisions. They want to see their stuff get more money um, and, and, and hopefully there'll be cuts in other people's things, but that is I never the way it works out. Isn't there a related story about a presidential candidate in the year 2012 who said he would eliminate three agencies and the one that escaped him in that moment was the one that he ended up running in 2017? Anybody remember that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you, you can change your mind once you're put in charge of stuff. Oh, then the thing that you're put in charge of, of course, you want to keep that. There are so many comments to make that edge on getting into trouble on that issue. Well, I'm here to start trouble. I thought that I thought that was my job. Well, that's why I'm leaving, I guess. I don't know. Too much trouble. Here's what I think happened. If you recall, eliminating the Department of Energy used to be a key plank of conservative the conservative governing platform. Mm -hmm. I think when Governor Perry forgot the Department of Energy when he was listing the departments, that he, the parts of the government that he would get rid of. I think when he forgot it, so did the rest of conservatism. <laughs> because since then... That was the moment. <laughs> since then, now everyone kind of loves DOE again. Well, and one reason that people like DOE is that DOE funds stuff. DOE puts money in people's districts. Like, that. Yeah. this is the, I mean... It's the nice thing about uh, it is it is the nice thing about working at DOE, as in you don't have like you, you are not a for the most part you are not like focused on regulations. It's not like EPA, um, but uh, it's because like you're out there you know spreading money around, and who doesn't who doesn't like to do that? Um, now you know unfortunately it's billions and billions of taxpayer dollars when at a time that we can't afford it. And it's doing doing things that seem cool, and yeah. that that politicians and folks can be like, "Look at this thing we're doing." Um, and you know the 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 the, 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 the sad part is, um, no, not enough people shine a bright enough light on the negative aspects of those things, of how it crowds out other R&D, how it changes the culture of entrepreneurship and innovation, how it takes taxpayer money away, how for every job that's created, multiple jobs are killed. Um, 
And look, yeah, that, that's not, I'm not just, I'm having a, I'm, I'm making a serious comment now. I'm not just, you know, ragging on DOE and, and bureaucrats. It's more of a broader commentary on why it's so hard to get over this stuff because people ignore the unseen negative impacts and shine a light on the positive things because it always comes down to elections and, 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 and that sort of thing. Well, it, it does. And that's the, and that's really the challenge. And, you know, Jack, you and I had a, had an, you know, a little bit of an email conversation recently about this, about this topic. And, you know, the, because, you know, during the Trump administration where, you know, arguably like it, it, it's not crazy to think that you could have seen um, reductions in the federal budget or reductions to, you know, to DOE's budget. Um, while I was at DOE for the four years that I spent at DOE during the Trump administration, the budget of the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy increased almost 40 percent. Mm. Um, and there are some, you know, some just political reasons that that happened, as in uh, the one is that that Democrats, I think, wanted to fund it extra as to uh, to, to thumb their noses at Trump, um, given where he you know was on 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 energy, and um, it also is like a you know this the, the the things in that office are you know everybody likes them, um, you know everybody like as as in they all poll well. Yeah. Um, and renewable energy polls well. And because of that, um, it is, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of safe, but it is also kind of, it is crazy to me. I mean, just crazy is like just a, it's just a fact, just a really interesting fact that, you know, during the Trump administration, the budget of the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy increased by 40%. And it wasn't because Trump was out there like driving up the budget in the president's budget. Every year there were cuts. Um, but it was just everything around, you know, it's where Congress was and Congress wasn't anywhere close to where the president's budget was. And, uh, you know, as conservatives think about, you know, reducing, um, reducing the federal budget overall, they need to think very seriously about, um, incentives for, uh, for members of Congress. I mean, that is, and, and especially the pro the appropriators, um, until that happens, I, you know, I'm, I, I, I have little, reason to hope for, you know, declining, uh, declining budget deficits overall that I think are, you know, really, really a problem for us and our children. Yeah. Um, just to let folks know, um, you mentioned the email exchange that we had just so, so people know what we're talking about. Uh, we had, Dan and I had a, a email discussion, not even a debate, um, because I think we both want to get to the same place, but about um, whether or not a new administration should should move money around from you know to, to reprioritize or should the objective be to be to reduce overall spending and um, we were a little bit talking about different things maybe because I I was arguing that we shouldn't be moving money around because we shouldn't be spending on any of it and Dan made the very good point of well whether we should or shouldn't money's going to be spent so we would be better off moving it around to higher priorities. So um, anyway, that's what that was about. But Dan, I, one of my concerns, Dan, with that conversation, and I'm glad you brought it up because I think it's an interesting one that conservatives need to have, is, yes, I hear what you're saying about, or I, I hear, not, I don't want to sign this to you. I hear what one is saying about if 
you know, if the money's going to be spent, move it around to these other things that are higher priorities. What that, what that sentiment seems to ignore to me is the negative impact it has on the subsidized industries. Like subsidies never work. They never work. They cause a misallocation of capital, um, all different things that, that don't leave the subsidized industry better off in the long term. And I don't, it's just tough for me to ever be like, yeah, we, should, we, we want nuclear to be successful, so let's throw money at nuclear. When in fact, there are underlying reasons why nuclear is not successful. There are underlying reasons why people aren't investing in coal. It's not about DOE spending in either case. It's because of you know, other things. And the DOE spending, as we've seen, you know, I know nuclear best, doesn't fix any of those underlying things. And you end up having spent the money and having distorted capital flows and not ending up in a good, better place in the long term. Anyway, that's why I push back against that whole the whole notion of reprioritizing but still spending. Anyway, um, I don't know. I, I also understand that there are practicality issues to deal with and and all that. Well, and 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 the you know, I mean, somewhat you're as you're saying, somewhat we were like talking past each other a little mm. bit in that we have like you and I we have the same goal here. Right. That uh, you know we we need a federal government that is. That is uh, fiscally responsible. <laughs> At the end of the day, that's that's what matters. Um, but you know the, the 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 challenge there is really the appropriators and the appropriators, you know, spending money on the things that the the appropriators want to spend money on. And until until that un, un, until that there is like a reduction in the top line, um, like the, that is that is really the challenge because. Uh, un- unless an agency can can uh, you know like the Department of Energy cannot spend money legally, and as I understand the law, like if Congress allocates it, you essentially have to make best efforts to spend it. Um, that's that is a that's that's a real challenge. So it's there's no easy answers. Is the problem is I mean this is this is an incredibly difficult issue. That fiscal conservatives over the last, I don't know how many years, well, since the Clinton administration, have really struggled with this and uh, to try to rein in federal spending overall. And we have really gone backwards. Yeah. So I've got two threads here that I want to pull up. And Daniel, you can pull on either one. Here's the two things that I'd like to talk about. There's the, so when we come up with a comprehensive plan on like what to do with the agencies, like what the next admin should do with the agencies, that was project 2025. There's, you know, there's a whole book. It got some, uh, mixed press coverage. They say we're trying to, um, let's see, project 2025 plan to dismantle us climate policy. Um, so there's that part we do. We do have a, a, a sketch at least for how we deal with the agencies. And I, I agree. It'd be nice to, basically make them smaller, ideally more efficient and all that stuff. In some cases, I'll go full Jack Spencer and say that agency shouldn't exist. Uh, the other thing, if we're talking about priorities, and this is a bit of a pivot, but, you know, the office that you ran, um, you know, $2 billion a year, that's a pretty large amount of money. The, the thing that I'd like to flag is that we have, through the Inflation Reduction Act, we have subsidies that could total, when all said and done, something more like $2 trillion. Um, but I'm curious sort of where you come down on when, when it comes time to rein in spending, do we, do you want to focus on the agencies or are we talking about 
the uh, the subsidy paradigm, or where where's the where's the easiest place to push back? That's a <laughs> that's a good question. I don't know if I I really have a uh, a a good answer because like so much of the money is in as as you know the two trillion. So much of that is tax policy, and uh, you know my take is that people should uh, you know not be taxed as much, and uh, so but. Uh, the it is it is a challenge i would i i probably start with the agencies but then again i mean the agencies do things that allow members of congress to you know to to say hey look at the good stuff you know look at hey district look at the good stuff i'm doing for you guys thank you for sending me here please send me back in november and uh i i, I don't know how you overcome those incentives well it's bankruptcy tough. Well, it's tough and I, yeah i mean the other thing this is the thing that I will keep flagging for people as long as I'm around to to talk about this kind of stuff. The subsidies in the IRA, yeah, they're they're styled as tax credits, but they're also styled as uh, they've shifted to a direct pay system. So even if you don't have a tax liability, you can still get the credit, and then it's basically a direct subsidy. It's not a it, it's not even a tax credit at that point. But going forward, you go into this like resource neutral production tax credit thing, completely open ended. It only ends. It's, you know the 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 law says it ends in 2032, or if it's later, when we hit 25% of the greenhouse gas emissions from the power sector, uh, using 2022 as a baseline, which is important because 2022 we already had it's already significantly lower than say 2005. So I I view that as like an, a never ending stream of PTC payments. So uh, I think step one is to raise awareness that it's that open-ended and that it could cost us two or three trillion dollars. Well, and also the, um, the real problem that is caused by PTC payments, um, as in, you know, this is, this is something that we, that, that you and I have, have talked about for years and we have written about it. Um, when you, when you have the wind production tax credit that incentivizes people for producing energy, no matter the value or electricity, no matter the value of that electricity, um, that doesn't make any economic sense, and it and it leads to uh, harms to the to the overall grid. Uh, you know, one of the and it's like also why I mean part of the part of the challenge that we are seeing um, today that we have very low wholesale prices of electricity. Wholesale prices are down. However, retail prices are up. Now I don't care what wholesale prices are. What I care about is what. I pay when I pay my electricity bill, what my neighbors pay when they pay their electricity bills. Um, and that is going in exactly the wrong direction. Uh, you know, I, I looked up some numbers the other day. Um, over the past 20 years, natural gas prices are 14% lower um, than 14% uh, um, lower if you um, today than they were 20 years ago if you adjust for inflation. Electricity rates are about 10% higher um, than they were 20 years ago, if you correct for inflation. And so I, this is a, this, this, this is a critical issue that, that our electricity markets are just, are completely distorted in part by things such as the, by the, by the production tax credit. Um, and it like that needs to be fixed because we are going in and in exactly the wrong direction. And for people that say, well, yeah, but shouldn't this, this is leading like the wind production tax credit. This should lead to lower cost electricity. Okay, guys, show me where, please give me a, 
you know, give me a concrete example of where this is leading to lower cost electricity, because at the end of the day, that is what matters. As in lower yeah. cost electricity for consumers, for ratepayers, not for the middleman. I've asked that question too. And uh, yeah, they don't tend to have an answer. Although I will say this is a, this is a frustrating thing, but the people who regulate the wholesale markets are not the same people that regulate the retail markets. And therefore, if you're at the state level, you can say, well, yeah, the retail rates are going up, but a lot of that happens at wholesale. So it, whether it's transmission build out or however you want to characterize the, the, the price increases, but then they say, so that's not really, that's not up to us. But then you ask FERC, you ask people at the wholesale side and they say, well, if retail rates are going up, that's really not our problem because that's that's not our jurisdiction. So they kind of point at each other. Uh, I'd like to get them all in the same room. We'll see if we can pull that off at some point. Dan, I've been we've been talking your ear off. Ask grilling you. What do you, is there? What issues are are you working on? Do you what do you want to talk about? It's grinding <laughs> your gears nowadays. <laughs> well, Jack, I want. I mean, this was. People that care about nuclear are really excited this week because Vertal is finally like online. Um, it's something I've actually been been wondering about. Getting your take on the big picture here: Why in the world was this so ridiculously expensive? Um, and is there a is there a, a a path forward? What is the path forward on nuclear? Um, I, I so what 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 are your thoughts? I mean, I too am excited that Vogel finally came online, but I'm extraordinarily skeptical of the path that it took to get there. I mean, you know, we, we touched on this a little bit earlier. Vogel is the product of the 2005 Energy Policy Act and the subsidies therein. Um, what the 2005 Energy Policy Act did not do was fix any of the underlying issues with things like regulation, nuclear waste management. And I would argue the Department of Energy having too many, too much role in the quote-unquote business of nuclear energy. So you end up with this industry who has one foot in the private sector and one foot in government. And I'm just skeptical that any such industry can ever be successful over the long term. And you end up with, you know, the Energy Policy Act of 2005. If you look at the number of reactors that it was set up to – well, first of all, it was set up to kickstart the industry, to instigate this nuclear renaissance, but it had direct subsidies for about six reactors. And, you know, we're – that that all went poof. You ended up with two half-built ones in South Carolina and the, the two completed ones that took way too long. It cost way too much in Georgia. And now we're going down that same road again, and people are swearing up and down that this time's different. And I'm just skeptical that it is, Dan, because these things I – ha, I have faith in American innovation in the American private sector. And notwithstanding good folks like yourself who serve this country in government – I just don't have a lot of faith in the government's ability to, 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 to build an industry or to subsidize an industry or to make the long-term capital decisions on which industry, industrial success depends. So I'm kind of down. I'm excited about where nuclear is right now. I'm very excited about the opportunity because I don't know that the opportunity's ever been greater. And I just hope that we don't squander that with another subsidy-laden approach and rather use this as an opportunity to get to some of those underlying issues. Anyway, that's probably more than you were asking for. No, no, but that's, it that's isn't. It isn't because like, so, you know, I made this joke before and unfortunately I, I think it's more and more true. And the joke is that, uh, you know, no one hates nuclear energy as much as the nuclear regulatory commission. And 
the the problem is is I I I continue to see these examples of how that is true. Um, just the other day, I saw this article by Allison McFarlane, who is uh, is was formerly on uh, formerly one of the commissioners. I think uh, she was the former chairman. She was the chairman, chairman from mm-hmm. uh, from 2012 to 2014, um, where she's like you know saying that uh, that SMRs uh, essentially what she's saying is that. You know, SMRs have no future. And like on on one hand, like she is, you know, one of one of the points that, that she makes is no SMRs are commercially available. They are all just designs. Well, you know, Allison, you know this better than, you know, almost anyone. I don't know what it costs New Scale itself to get its first SMR design you know, through the, uh, you know, through the, uh, the NRC process, but the, the Department of Energy paid over $200 million, I believe, to, yeah. to get that design license, to help them get that design licensed. U.S. And, taxpayer through the Department of Energy. Exactly. I mean, like <laughs> $200 million. Yeah. And, and that wasn't like the full cost because that isn't the cost that came from, you know, that, that, that came from, from the actual scale. investors. For yeah. New scale, and it doesn't exist yet. And this is this is the thing that has really, um, you know, frustrated me and concerned me about the future of nuclear energy, is that every time you see these, you know, you you, you see a uh, like a timeline, and every time like it's it's a year later, you know, things things are pushed further to the right, further down the road, um, and that's kind of scary um, to me because I, you know, I love the technology. I think it's fantastic. It is really exciting, but the NRC, there is like, I cannot understand a world where the NRC thinks that it is, where the NRC produced $200 billion of value reviewing that application. I mean, New Scale is a small modular reactor. It's it's not something that a U.S. company has commercially deployed in the past, but it's a light water reactor. It's not even one of these new, you know, it's it's not a... It's not a tech. It's not an unpermitted technology, so that it took so long is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, and you know, this goes back to the point we said earlier with the subsidies. I would argue that the new scale subsidies are the are a perfect example of what's wrong here. New and and, and I want, I'm I'm pro new scale. Like I want them to be successful. This isn't an, an this isn't a a um, I'm not picking on new scale here. Um, but whenever the federal government uses taxpayer money to subsidize the process. What they essentially do is relieve pressure on process reform. What, and, and, and that's part of the problem we have here. We shouldn't be subsidizing these things. If, if the process as it exists is too onerous for a company like New Scale, which is a real company with a real reactor, that's not using some crazy technology to get through the process and the process stinks and it needs to be reformed. And so... Um, Look, that, that's one – that's a real-world example of how I think subsidies leave us worse off in the long term, but it nonetheless is something that the pro-nuclear community tends to support. Uh, I'll say that real, real, real quick on NRC. NRC gets a lot of blame, and I'm not a big fan. I'm not a big NRC guy. But the A problem is leadership there. If you have an NRC chair – who wants nuclear to be successful and want, and wants the regulator to play the role of regulator, which is to ensure 
the public health to efficiently ensure the public health and safety um, and, 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 and to review permits and that sort of thing. NRC can do that. They, look at what they did with the life extension program in the um, mid 2000s. They, they really turned those things around quick. And I'll tell you what, here's another thing to remember. Pete Domenici, he's the one who's told NRC, either you do this quick or you're not getting any money. So, so like, the NRC bureaucracy has a ton of problems, but, it all, but, but, it, but there are, that's not the only problem, I would say. Well, and that's been, it, it was one of the challenges where, with the NRC, when you had Harry Reid um, coming from Nevada and hating Yucca Mountain and, uh, you know, their issues with Yucca Mountain, but um, in issues in terms of uh, the their political, their political issues, political I mean, issues, he, not technological boy, issues, political issues. His, yeah, he um, put his boy Greg Yasko in charge of the NRC. I mean, so like, uh, yeah, sole purpose was to stop Yucca Mountain. And, 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 and Yasko, he, you know, for his flaws, he, I can't, I have to respect him. He, he we, we made a, a, a documentary here at Heritage on nuclear energy and Greg Yasko was um, nice enough to participate in that, which I'm, I'm thankful, but I still disagree with him on policy and he was Harry Reid's guy to stop Yucca. I'm sorry. I interrupted. Go ahead. What were you saying? No, that just that, I mean, that's, that's uh that is, it is, again, so much of this is politics. So much of energy needs to be moved outside the bounds of politics, moved inside the bounds of, of consumers, of families, deciding what, what energy technology makes sense for me and, uh, you know, at, at what cost. Um, people making those decisions for themselves as opposed to the regulators making the, you know, making decisions and then, you know, everybody else having to live with these with these expensive decisions. Yeah. Well, and especially if you're an investor and you're thinking about, well, do I do I take on this project? It's going to be tough. Do I try to build a new nuclear power plant? Uh, if the regular if the chair of the regulatory commission that you'd have to go through says your technology has no future, uh, I imagine that would have a chilling effect. And it sounds a lot to me like what Biden is doing with the like, I'm not going to work with the fossil fuel companies and then he complains later that they didn't invest more it just it's it's a pretty clear signal that your investment's not going to work out and and that's the and that's the point i mean that is the point right there is just to create political risk to to create insurance risk for example and so that people do not spend money in uh in you know on on oil gas and coal but I'm optimistic. I, th I think there is a really good application, especially on industrial sites. We'll see how the Dow and X Energy deal works out. I hope, you know, I I only hope the best for them. Uh, they are kind of, uh, we'll see we'll see how they fare. Uh, it'll be interesting to watch them go through the process. Do you do you know Jack what their process is actually like? Do they where where are they? They have to go through the NRC to get some sort of permit to operate, right? I'm not sure actually where they are in the exact process, but here's, I want them to be successful. I would love X Energy to build their high temperature gas cooled reactors. And I think, and I would love them to build them with Dow or for whomever. I'm pro, 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 all of that. But the same thing happened in 2005. It was X Energy's predecessor who was teaming up with Dow to produce industrial heat 
for Dow's chemical processes. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. I've seen it before. I hope I'm wrong. I hope in five years, you and Dan sit me down and say, Jack, you were so wrong. This government first approach was awesome. But man, I'm telling you, I'm seeing the same exact things. Again, I've been around, I, I'm old enough now, unfortunately, to like have seen this cycle unfold. And I'm, I'm just, so what, I'm going with my eyes. What, and I'm, I'm never going to sit you down and say the government's awesome. That's a, that, <laughs> I can guarantee you that will never happen. But what happened with that first round? Did they have a plan and then it got scrapped? Or what what, well, the, what the, happened after 2005? The, the, the whole impetus behind the nuclear renaissance went away. So there were, different, there were different reasons. Natural gas was high, and then because of fracking, it went down. So that changed the energy economics. But I would argue that there are policies in place that prevent the full evolution of the industry to occur. And for it to evolve based on market signals in a way that would make it competitive regardless of what natural gas, that, that, that its other attributes would allow it to compete interestingly with natural gas. It seems like we don't even have enough attempts to go a sort of trial and error route, which is usually the way that you come up with new stuff, trial and error. Now it's more like, you know, you don't actually get the trial. Um, you get a ton of errors, but you don't actually get to implement the thing. So I mean, we're, we're not learning much, so, basically. So we have all these nuclear technologies. Most of those happened in government labs during the Cold War because of this this government, because of this culture of innovation that was existing in the labs as it pertained to nuclear energy and nuclear technology driven by and, 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 and in the context of the Cold War. Um, I mean, Rickover, I'm, I've mentioned this before, Rickover went from there not being any submarine, nothing. No one had ever built a nuclear submarine before. Four years later, pushing that puppy into the water. I mean, can you imagine such a thing? We used to build commercial reactors in four and five years. It's nothing new. Like, we did that in the 60s and 70s. So we can do all that stuff again. That's what gives me optimism. I know that we can do it. Um, but we have to allow... You know, people will ask me, what do you think of this technology or that technology or what's the right? Like, I don't care about that. Here's what I care about. Have a regulatory system that allows anyone who wants to build a nuclear reactor to put it through that system in an efficient way so they can go build it and have the and not have to worry about the political risk of doing so. Have a nuclear waste strategy that gets the government out of nuclear waste so that private companies can decide what the benefits of certain nuclear waste streams are versus others. Have a uh, get get the government out of the business of nuclear energy and focus government scarce resources on solving broadly applicable problems. In my perfect world, they wouldn't even do that, but that's a reasonable thing given the history and context of nuclear energy in this country. You would be a very entertaining chair of of the NRC because you uh, you could just say I shouldn't even be here <laughs> well, and explain why. I mean, you could spend the rest of the time explaining why you shouldn't be there, but that's the problem. <laughs> We're going. Here. That's that. I uh, well, you know, it, the, none of that matters. You know, something that we didn't talk about that I wish we would have is our time at um, during the landing team, because working for me, this is it's dead serious. That those handful of months of us working together prior to the election and definitely after the election when we were in on the landing team was my career highlight. I have never had more fun than those months that we that we worked together. And while we were all here talking, sort of reminiscing, because you're bolting, bouncing after this, I just wanted to say that to both of you. 
I had a good time too. And I, I've, I think I've talked about this before, but it's worth saying again, every meeting with Jack Spencer was just a uh, chef's kiss. Just, <laughs> just everybody, he would sit everybody down the same thing. Like, why are you here? What are you doing? Why couldn't the private sector do your job better than you? Why does your office exist? How, how much taxpayer money are you spending right now? <laughs> and they would just squirm. They've never had to answer these kinds of questions. And I, I feel like that would be a good exercise, no matter who wins the election, to have somebody like Jack Spencer go in to every government office and ask those questions because it would at least make them think about what they're doing and why. Because I don't think they had really gone through that thought experiment ever. But I got to watch it over and over again in real time. It was amazing. Well, let me, you know, to, to that point, um, the, all of those, all of the offices of, you know, of DOE, because that's what I, that's what I know well, should be, you know, should answer that question. It's like, what is your, what are you doing? And what is your statutory authorization to actually do that? You know, what is, what is your, you know, what is your vision? What is your mission? And what is your statutory, because guys, your your vision, your mission should come from statute. Um, it is it is that simple. You do not get to make it up. Um, whether you're a political appointee or you know or a career of uh, Congress gives you know Congress gives the federal government its marching orders. It is in statute, um, and that is uh, that's it. It uh, anyway. I, I think that's just a, a really important point that gets that gets missed sometimes in terms of you know, what DOE is doing. Um, and Congress doesn't always assert its, you know, its, its, uh, you know, its, its role as much as it should, because sometimes DOE is, is doing things that they, that they approve of. And so of course they're not going to like stop them from doing things that they approve of that they might not actually have, you know, very, where, where, where uh, they might not have like strong, strong statutory support for, for it. So it's just a, so it's a pet peeve of mine. Um, stick to the statute. Stick to what Congress has told you to do, and yeah. things will be uh, <laughs> things will be much better. Dan, you just got the last word. Thank you so much. I hope that that wasn't too too painful for you. No, it's great. I mean, I love you guys. So it's it's always it's always good to talk. I am I am bummed for heritage. I was excited that that Travis was going to heritage. Um, so I am excited that he is going to Cato because they need to do more on energy. Um, so that is a good thing. I'm also really bummed. I'm, I'm, I'm bummed for you guys to, to be losing him. So um, it is a, like a, it's, it's a, it's a I'm double sword. Far. I'm not going far. I'll that, be easy to find. That is a sentiment that is shared by many, I can assure you. But anyway, um, thank you to everyone who took some time out of your day to listen to the Power Hour. And please, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell your friends, family, and colleagues to check us out. Now, Travis and Dan, any final words? Do I get to go first? Yeah, whoever. You're, both of you can say I, no. I just want to offer a sincere thank you. Thanks, Jack. It's been nice to be on the show. I will, uh, I'll come back anytime you invite me. I realize that might be never, that you know, <laughs> we'll see. But yeah. I, I'll, I'll, I'll say yes. I'll come back whenever, you, whenever yeah. you'll have me. We'll see if we can make that happen. I was going to say now, Travis, any final, final words? Because this is your last chance, buddy. I really, well, so I've been trying to do the, the, the Rachel job of where can you find us? I think people know that now. 
where can you just for for old times sake for old times sake how do they reach us we're on the herd at heritage platform you can find us anywhere you get your podcast just do a search power hour heritage it'll pop right up uh, and if you want to engage with us, if you want to send us an email. Or as you should say, if you want to engage with Jack. If you, <laughs> Jack will be the one responding, not me. Um, thepowerhour at heritage.org is the email address. There you go, folks. That's it. Say goodbye to Travis. Bye, Travis. And thank you all for taking some time. Thank you, Dan. And we will see you all next time. <laughs>